Dean Arnold, and we are talking about his book, Hillary and Vince, a story of love, death, and cover-up. His book was published on June 19th, 2016. This interview was conducted in late August to early September of 2016. Again, the author's name is Dean Arnold, and the title of the book is Hillary and Vince, a story of love, death, and cover-up. Thank you for listening. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. Tonight we have a very special guest who uh, published a recent book titled Hillary and Vince, a story of love, death, and cover-up. Dean Arnold, are you there? I'm right here. Awesome, Dean. Thank you very much for being on the show. I read your book last night. I read the whole thing. I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. it was uh, had a lot of personal relevance to me. And uh, before we get started talking about the subject, please tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a uh, freelance uh, author, writer, documentarian. And so I've uh, uh, various subjects over the years. It tends to mostly be uh, history and biography. Uh, but I've... Uh, also dealt into some investigation and of course this book is kind of a thriller investigative reporting and uh and also kind of dabble in what some people would call conspiracy theory i like to call it corruption theory um and so uh yeah that's what i've done over the years great well um uh, tell me why did you pick up this subject about hillary and vince foster uh, I was, uh, kind of a Republican conservative activist when I was a young man and, uh, which was 93, I'd have been about 23, 24 years old. I was working at a think tank here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And, and, uh, I was following a lot of the, the Vince Foster thing when it first happened. I think I, I was early on following Mike Rivero's, uh, what really happened website. He was on it pretty quick. And it used to be when, called Rancho Runamucca. Do you remember that name? No, I did not know that. That's funny. <laughs> but he, but I uh, read that too. I read that too. Gotcha. Okay. So I uh, was uh, watching the Senate banking hearings. They spent a day doing Whitewater hearings. And they spent, uh, or uh, I guess they did Whitewater hearings in a portion of the day or the entire day they dealt with Vince Foster. And at some point in time, they brought up the uh, coroner, Dr. James Beyer. Right. And uh, it was the perfunctory senators just kind of saying political stuff and nobody really getting to the issue, except for one guy, L- Louch Faircloth from North Carolina. And uh, <clears throat> he came, uh, Louch Faircloth started asking some pretty tough questions. And he said, you know, Dr. Beyer, you marked on your coroner's report that you took x-rays. But now you're testifying that you didn't take x-rays. Did you take x-rays or didn't you take x-rays? And he says, I didn't take any x-rays. He says, well, why didn't you take any x-rays? And he said, well, it's because the machine broke. He said, well, you know, the park police say in their reports that you told them that you took x-rays and you told them the results of the x-rays, that there was no bullet fragments. He says, how in the world could the park police give reports that you took an x-ray if you didn't take an x-ray he says well i just i just don't have any explanation and uh you know it it was you know and they kept asking questions why didn't you you know bring in another copy machine from i mean an x-ray machine from a 
another uh, uh, hospital? Why didn't you get your X-ray machine fixed? I mean, it was just, you know, it just, it was absurd. And uh, I thought it was the big smoking gun that would sort of blow the whole case open. Interesting. And uh, I'd, ha- I'd happened to tape, taped it on a VHS recorder, I think. And so we got, we, in Chattanooga, we've got kind of a conservative paper we did back in the day, conservative, Republican, you know, Bible verses on the editorial page, you know, everything you could ask for. Real Bible so I, belt stuff. Yeah. So I took, uh, I took this uh, portion of the hearings to show this guy. I was like, man, he's going to freak out. And he, he watched it and just sort of nodded his head and smiled and said, thank you. And that was it. So I just thought, I was just like, how in the world can people not get up in arms about this? Why, why do you know, it seems like someone like him would blast it on the front page, but there just wasn't an interest. And I just couldn't figure that out. It just, it saddened me and it confused me, but it also made me quite determined to uh, um, do more about it. Uh Uh, It wasn't until years later that I was in between uh, writing books and looking for my next gig, my next project. And I was in the, uh, Annapolis, Maryland area and a friend of mine from college who I was meeting with, he, uh, he said that he happened to be friends with the guy who was working real closely with Patrick Knowlton, who was one of the key witnesses in the foster case. And I was like, really, you know, the guy? Yeah. He says, man, I'd love to meet those guys. Uh, I'd read about Patrick Knowlton over the years and, uh, thought he was quite a hero and, uh, really admired what he'd done. Um, Real quickly, he was uh, probably the first eyewitness on the case, uh, the first real one. And can you uh, just kind of retell for the audience who isn't familiar with the death of Vince Foster? Just yeah, kind good of point. Yeah, what happened yeah, to yeah. him, where yeah, it good, happened, and, and good when point. Yeah, good point. You can't take anything for granted. Um, Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, came into the White House uh, in uh, 1993, and within six months, uh, it, it became top of the news that uh, their friend and lawyer from Little Rock, Arkansas, that had come to the White House with them was found dead just outside the White House in a place called Fort Marcy Park. He was dead by gunshot, and he was one of the closest friends of the Clintons and was the kind of the keeper of all the personal stuff, their personal assets, you know, follow the money, that whole kind of thing. It's kind of, of like their conciliary, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it, sure. And, uh, and it was immediately ruled a suicide. You know how the media does. They immediately make their, their verdicts on whatever it is they're trying to push you towards. So it was immediately determined that it was a suicide, but there was lots of weird stuff that was happening. That was being reported at the same time that made you raise your eyebrow. Um, so that's who Vince Foster is. It was the highest ranking uh, death uh, of someone in the government, um, under suspicious circumstances since JFK. Yeah, it's a remarkable, and he was an attorney. It's a high-powered attorney. I think he went to Vanderbilt, right? You know, I don't know. I forgot. Uh, I forgot his college, but he was a de- he was deputy White House counsel, right. and he worked with Bernie Nussbaum, who was the White House counsel. And Fort Marcy Park got its name because it was an old Civil War fort that is west of downtown D.C. up the uh, kind of Parkway in Northern Virginia. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it's right there next to everything in D.C. It's just yeah. a you know, it's just a couple of miles from everything. So it's just right there. Gotcha. And uh, so then getting back to your story. So you met one of Knowlton. Did you meet Knowlton's attorney? Was it John Clark? No, I met uh, Hugh, Hugh Turley. Hugh Turley. Okay. And Hugh Turley was one of the early people who investigated the case. He lived in D.C., correct? 
Right. There's three guys. Let me get back to Patrick Knowlton real quick so people are familiar. Patrick Knowlton just was on his way from one place to another doing a little construction job at a cabin, and he, he needed to take a leak, and he just got off about 4.30 off the parkway and went to this place he wasn't really that familiar with, Fort Marcy Park, just went in there to find a place to go take a leak. And as he drove up and pulled in the parking lot, he pulled up next to a couple of cars. And one of the guys in the car kind of gets out and starts peering at him and giving him this look like, I'm going to, you know, get the hell out of here. You know, what the heck, what are you doing here? And it freaked him out. And he, he would normally would have just turned around and done something else, but he had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so he got out and kind of warily went over to a tree and did his thing and came back and he looked in one of the cars that the guy wasn't in and kind of saw a couple of things. And he saw that it had Arkansas tags. He saw that it was an early eighties light tan Honda Accord. And, uh, and that was it. Uh, he left. Well, that night he found out that uh, Vince Foster had been killed in that park about the time he was there. And he felt the need to call the park police and tell them about this very strange character that he saw there. Of course, they didn't seem to care, and nobody, nobody ever got back with them. Uh, uh, then what happened was about, oh, nine months to a year later, he got a call from uh, one of the top reporters in England, uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard with the London Daily Telegraph, who uh, uh, blasted Patrick Knowlton's story across uh, their worldwide newspaper, which caused Patrick to finally get uh, subpoenaed by the grand jury to tell his story. And just to let the audience know, Evans Ambrose Pritchard at the time was probably one of the few journalists who really looked into a lot of the Clinton shenanigans um, from yes. a very objective point. Oh, yeah. And, he, uh, he was actually, well, I was in D.C. at that time from 95 to 96. That uh, people that I knew and people at law school with me always referred to him as kind of really telling very uh, trenchant observations that some of the other journalists were not. So, yeah, he's got a great book called the secret life of Bill Clinton, which is uh, one of the greats. It's a great book. Yeah. He's a great writer. And uh, so he, Ambrose Evans Pritchard reached out to Patrick Knowlton, correct? Correct. And, uh, and so that kind of blew things open for Patrick Knowlton. He went and he ended up testifying in front of the grand jury. His Peugeot got bashed in by a guy the day he went to testify he had a bunch, he had like 25 FBI agents follow him one day, him and his girlfriend while they took a walk and he started getting harassed and strange things started to happen. And he ended up filing a lawsuit against the FBI. It went to the Supreme court. Right, um, and how did he find his lawyer? Didn't he run into John Clark at his apartment or something? Yeah, like that? They, they were both bachelors. And so they're doing laundry, you know, at some laundromat or at the bottom of the apartment complex or something. And so they just struck up a friendship. He ended, he had a, uh, I think a an issue with parking tickets or something. He he needed speeding tickets. He asked John for help, and John couldn't help him. Uh, maybe it was an insurance matter, but uh, John said he was a criminal attorney. But then when this decision, the this uh, case came up, John Clark said he could help him, and he ended up being a great great uh, colleague for him. So he and uh, John Clark, the attorney, Patrick Knowlton, the witness, and Hugh Turley, who's a kind who's a crack researcher. I, the, my book basically takes that trio and that's, that's what kind of weaves, weaves the book through. They become the protagonists, uh, kind of the heroes of the book. 
and it's kind of them against the world, David and Goliath, and they start uh, going to the National Archives and uncovering documents, and they start they get power discovery because of the lawsuit and start interviewing people, and they begin to uh, garner a whole bunch of evidence that nobody would know were were it not for these guys. So they kind of take on the whole federal beast, and it's really it's a fascinating story. And I mean, they're, so that's they're, how I got into were, it. I, 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 well, I was just going to say, like they had distinctly different impressions of the facts than the government and the Fisk report, which preceded the star report. Um, and that was really what made them different than what the, the government's position was. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Um, and you know, if you read my book, um, and this is just true a lot in life, people get sort of overwhelmed by, you know, when quote unquote, the government is coming out and giving this official story. They just think, you know, how could you, you know, how could we, you know, consider thinking differently or thinking that we've got the truth and the quote unquote, the government doesn't. But when you look into a case like this Vince Foster case that I wrote a book about at the end of the day, there's like two or three or, you know, FBI agents that kind of, are involved in every investigation. They were, they were there with the park police at the beginning. They were the main ones handling the Fisk report. They were the main ones handling, handling the star report. And so it's really just a few guys that do this uh, cover up and do this uh, corruption and this criminal activity that causes a a murder to get covered up. Um, So Patrick and Hugh and John Clark were, you know, uncovering some of this uh, evidence, and it was pretty obvious and pretty clear that the official government story, quote unquote, was chock full of holes and is not the right story. But you know, uh, it wasn't just those guys. The actually the lead prosecutor for the Star investigation uh, was uncovering the same evidence. And we his name was Miguel Rodriguez, Rodriguez, correct? Miguel Rodriguez, and we've got a thirty-page memo for him now. Uh, that he wrote back when this was happening, laying out reams and reams and reams of of, of uh, documentation of evidence of why uh, he believed Vince Foster did not commit suicide, but was murdered. And wasn't he pressured to kind of tell, toe the government line as a government employee and everything? Yeah, they they threw chairs around in his office. They threatened his personal life. They basically... Uh, threatened to expose the fact that he was gay. Um, So it was personal blackmail, physical threatening. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, after a few months of that, he finally, he finally cracked, but he wrote a 30 page memo to talking about the, the, the gun that was uh, uh, three different types of guns were identified. uh, When the first witness that got there, didn't see any gun at all. Um, he talked about how the body had been moved several times, how the park police had staged the corpse. Uh, he talked about, uh, Vince Foster having semen on his shorts. No one had looked into that. There were blonde hairs on Foster's body that were never identified. They never tried to identify him. There was one fingerprint on the gun, no other fingerprints anywhere on the guns. The finger, so the gun was wiped clean, but the one fingerprint they did find on the underside of the gun was never, they knew never even checked to see whose it was. There were fingerprints on the, on the alleged car of Vince Foster that were never checked or run for identification. You know, just, uh, rug rug fibers on his body as well. In addition to the, 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Rodriguez doesn't talk about that, but uh, yeah, that's that's been talked about. But you know, just lots of just hardcore forensic evidence that just was never never pursued and never never followed. Uh, so Miguel Rodriguez, he started calling uh, witnesses to the grand jury, primarily uh, park police officers, and started to crack the case. One of the one of the park police officers kind of broke down and admitted that the the crime scene had been altered. Uh, and at that point, the uh, the number two and number three guy under Ken Starr in the in the Ken Starr investigation, the op- uh, <clears throat> Office of Independent Counsel, um, which is like you know they have like two hundred staffers, but the number two and the number three guy were real high powered political dudes, and they basically uh, cornered Miguel Rodriguez, the lead park prosecutor, and said, "You will stop." And they 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 forbade him from calling any more grand juries, so he, he didn't have the ability to continue his investigation. So. Once that happened, did he, did he resign? He resigned and just basically left, right? Left government and traveled to California or something like that. Yeah, he right? went. He, he resigned, went back to California, um, yeah. and just got away from it all. He did, you know. He wrote this thirty-page memo for posterity, and it's a good thing that he did because uh, it took a few years. But uh, Knowlton and Hugh Turley, you know, finally found it in the National Archives. Uh, but but uh, you know, he wrote star this long memo and said, hey. You know, this is all that's here. This is all that's going on. We need to pursue this. And Ken Starr refused to uh, pursue it. You know, what's going on with Ken Starr, I don't know. But I think he, uh, something's not right, for sure. I mean, it was the Fisk and Starr reports were, were there were biases there. I mean, if, if you look through them, they clearly were ignoring certain facts and towing a certain line, at least in my opinion. I haven't read those in 20 years. But. Yeah, that's awfully generous to say they just sort of had biases. It, it's it's out and out fraud. Yeah. It's out and out um, just lies. Um, the the FBI, you know, they 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 did interview the medical examiner, and he'd say, "Yeah, in, uh, in in the parking lot was an orange compact car." Well, that's what Knowlton saw—a light tan, small car. And the problem is. Uh, the car that they say was in the parking lot was a late eighties uh, gray Honda, which is what Foster owned. But that car was not in the parking lot. And so if Foster's car is not in the parking lot, the whole theory breaks down because he can't go commit suicide in that park if he doesn't drive over there. Right. So the medical examiner says, yeah, I didn't see a, I didn't see that car, but I saw a small orange compact. Well, they left that out of his FBI report. Well, um, you know, people like Knowlton say, uh, you know, I, I didn't see a gray Honda and, and they, they'll put that in, in his, you know, they'll just kind of put, so they'll take stuff and put it into people's FBI reports and say that that's what they said when they didn't and things people did said they'd leave out. So there was just a lot of, uh, it was just a lot of out and out fraud. They did that with, uh, the gun. They put words in. Uh, Vince Foster's wife's mouth that, you know, she called a certain gun uh, silver, but it, you know, it was actually black. And they said, she said it was black. I mean, it's, you know, so to just say it's a bias is, is, is way too generous. Okay. Well, thanks for that. I mean, and what just kind of uh, go back and talk about Hillary and Vince's relationship. I mean, they had a personal, I mean, Hillary and Bill's relationship is very strange, but Hillary and Vince had things going on that, you know, uh, showed that they had a, uh, a deeper relationship. Is that correct? Oh yeah. Well, they had, a, they, they were lovers. They had an affair. 
Um, and beyond that, I'll get back to that in a second, but beyond that, Vince Foster was the keeper of the secrets. He was, he had all the whitewater papers and all the, he, he, he was charged to put their assets in a blind trust. Um, and he also, uh, he also worked with Hillary to track all of Bill's women, all, all the affair, affairs Bill was having. And he, they would, they would hire, she would get Vince to hire private investigators to monitor them and track them, often intimidate them and threaten them. And so Vince was involved in all that dirty business. But uh, I've got five different witnesses in my book who talk about Hillary and Vince's affair. One of them was, one's a doctor who said everybody knew that about Hillary and Vince and their affair. Uh, There was a couple of uh, bodyguards who said that whenever Bill went out of town, um, uh, Vince would show up, show up at the governor's mansion, like right away. They, they took uh, Hillary and Vince to a cabin out in the woods. Um, <clears throat> there's another uh, bodyguard named L.D. Brown who witnessed them, he, as he put it crassly, uh, sticking tongues down each other's throats. Um, and uh, he said that Hillary one time told him, uh, sometimes you got to do th- things you got to do to make, you know, to uh, outside of your marriage to, to get what you need. Um, Do you, um, do you know if their relationship was, they were still kind of uh, having an affair up until the time of his death? I don't know the answer to that. Interesting. Yeah. That's a curious point. But so, so this is Vince Foster, a close associate of the family has all their legal documents and then turns up dead six months after being in Washington, DC. Um, you know, it's just a remarkable story. Me, my, I mean, just to let you know, my association with John Clark and Patrick Knowlton is that I've met them personally 20 years ago as a law student when I was in D.C. I actually answered a ad at my law school for an, uh, an intern, and I actually worked with John Clark. So during that time, the summer of 1996, almost 20 years ago, uh, I used to hang out with them. I actually did a lot of work with John Clark. I didn't know at the time but what they really wanted was somebody to deliver their findings to uh, to Congress. And so me and John sat down at a table in his old offices, which were close to Chinatown, and actually folded and made all of these documents to be delivered to Congress and, and the Senate. And guess who get to do, got, got to do the delivery? It was me. Yeah. So I actually walked through all the houses of Congress and all of the um, senatorial offices and just dropped these off at the front or tried to hand them to people. I actually ran into uh, Senator Levin, who was the uh, senator from Michigan. I handed it directly to him. I walked into Arlen Specter's office. I mean, all these people, you could, Arlen Specter had a very uh, remarkable office in the sense that he had pictures from ceiling to floor and of all of his shaking hands. And this is the guy who came up with the magic bullet theory in the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, but, yeah. All those guys. So I walked through and did all that with John and me and John would hang out. John didn't have a car at the time. So he and I, I lived on the northern part of Virginia and he lived kind of close to Foggy Bottom. So we would go from his office, take the metro back home and John would get off first. And then I would just go on down to Virginia. So I can verify all of the stories are correct, that these guys are uh, really beyond reproach and that they had integrity. The stories really are true. Everything that Knowlton went through. And Clark was uh, really a great guy, a great boss. And, uh, you know, I can just vouch for it firsthand. I also endured some kind of similar things as Knowlton. You know, they they wanted to take a look at me too. 
the FBI and stuff like that. So I remember going places and people taking my picture. And I saw all the pictures that Knowlton ha- had of these kind of young, well-shaven guys, these kind of like uh, younger guys holding black uh, black satchels and stuff like that, following Knowlton around. So I saw the pictures of that. And um, I met Knowlton firsthand. I met face-to-face. We went out to dinner once or twice. And uh, it's just interesting. I actually walked out to Fort Marcy Park and stood exactly over the berm where uh, Vince Foster was dumped. And I was like, no way. There's no way. This doesn't look like a place that somebody would go and commit suicide. It looks like a place that's secretive and has forested where somebody would be dumped. So uh, I, uh, I, didn't, I never really believed it once I started researching it. And this was like three years after it happened, 1996. But everybody in, Bay, in, in D.C. at that time was very well aware of the Vince Foster story. But they were also aware of like the Clinton body count. And everybody in, in D.C. talked about Mena, Arkansas, and all these associations with Dan Laster that you talk about in your book. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of people that fell off, like jumped off of apartment buildings that were found dead in cars. Um, so, you know, the time in D.C. when I was there for three years, and I was, I've actually shook Bill Clinton's hand twice. I, uh, I, I, I worked, I know people who worked with all of these different higher end people, you know, I know. Yeah. So, uh, it was very interesting being D- in DC. I'll just leave it at that, but I know the Vince Foster story and I, I followed Mike Rivero's, uh, information too. And that's another guy who got harassed. I mean, for saying that he thought that, uh, Vince Foster uh, was murdered. He actually endured harassment. A lot of people did. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's just my part of that story. Um, yeah. and, uh, so, I mean, it's really a fascinating story there. there, And what do you think, like, as far as, like, Vince Foster, what what do you think was uh, the cause of how it happened or why it happened? Well, that's, a, that's an open-ended question. Um, and I don't think uh, anybody has a real strong grasp on the answer to the question. I, in my book, I propose three different reasons why – Vince Foster uh, may have been killed, and uh, one of them has well, to do with. Before, before you say that, wasn't he after he, he was disappeared? Didn't they find like a ripped up suicide note? And didn't Nussbaum go through Vince Foster's office and take papers? I mean, there was a consistent kind of element within the Clintons of destroying papers. And the interesting thing is that I just read within the last week or so that Vince Foster's documents that were in um, either the National Archives or some other uh, building were disappeared. Did you read that? Wh- whose papers? Bill Clinton's papers were disappeared? No, it was, uh, it was Vince Foster's. Vince Foster's papers were disappeared. Uh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't see that, but uh, some stuff crops up here and there about Foster. Well, you know, um, the- Here it is, exclusive missing FBI files linking Hillary Clinton to the suicide of White House counsel. Vince Foster have vanished from the National Archives. Oh, yeah, yeah, a, I did uh, see, yeah, I did see that. You know, email um, thing from that, August that's, 23rd. So it's, yeah, that's Jim Clement. Jim Clement, the FBI agent, and another guy. They've come out a couple times in the last couple of months with some stories like that, which to me looks suspiciously like disinfo, um, dis- oh, disinformation, sure. because they're trying to reinforce the idea that Foster was a suicide. 
so they kind of reveal some interesting, juicy things like, oh, there's some missing documents. But but at the end of the day, the story is saying that Vince Foster was a suicide. Gotcha. I didn't get that. Here it is, the article, if you can see it on the screen. Yeah, yeah, no, I've read that. And actually, um, when the first article came out from those guys, I actually included it in my book. And then I talked to Hugh Turley, and he set me straight um, because these guys are, are really putting out disinformation. Interesting. Um, There's actually another disinfo um, writer who I can't remember what her name is, but she put out a book that talks about Vince Foster and she goes through all the facts and then says, Oh, he committed suicide. He committed suicide. So it's yeah. clear that there's enough power out there to there's Clemente. Yeah. Um, there's enough power out there to actually write books that are disinfo. Yeah. And I think uh, Christopher Reddy, you got to kind of look at with a raised eyebrow too. He's a strange one. Why do you say that? Well, he, fo- he focuses a lot on the body being moved on the, fibers and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure that's, that's a very helpful direction to go. He's got some strange connections with uh, the heads of the FBI. Several of the heads of the FBI seem to have very close access to them. Almost like he, he could have been working as a double agent. Um, Wouldn't surprise me at all. He just put out a recent, a book recently, another follow-up to it. Um, Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Yeah, let me see if I can find it. He came out, uh, Strange Death of Vince Foster, an investigation. I don't know. Maybe it was just a rehash of an older book. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I guess it was. I think it was. Well, uh, the the tack I took with the book was not to try to identify – who killed Foster or why he was killed. Um, But to lay out the preponderance of evidence that he undoubtedly was killed. And then to say, if Hillary was his best friend and his lover and all this myriad of evidence and documentation of a cover up of his death and murder is right there for everyone to see. Why has Hillary Clinton said nothing? What kind of friend is this person? What kind of colleague is this person to let her close friend and lover be murdered and there be a huge organized cover-up and her to say nothing about it? And that's really, that's the tact I take because that's, uh, that's really, you can't really argue against it. And you don't want a person like that as president of the United States. So that's the clear cut uh, kind of thesis of my book. And in terms of who killed him and why he was killed, uh, there's some thing, there's some places you can look and there's some interesting theories, but I don't think anything has been cl- con- conclusively put together yet. Have you ever heard the theory that he, there was a kind of like bachelor pad at an apartment in DC that was actually very common for a lot of upper level guys, a, a place to go to and drink that, he was lured there and that's where the murder took place. Yeah, I've heard that. And it could be, um, uh, it doesn't really help explain why. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I always thought that he was a straight arrow and that was, uh, an anathema to, uh, being a politician with the Clintons, you know, and there was a lot of whitewater stuff that was going on there and he might've wanted to 
come clean with it. And somebody insider said, no way. Had you heard that? Yeah, I, that, that's a tougher one for me to believe. I, I think I think you have to say that if he was the Clintons, quote unquote, consigliere, and and you look at what they were doing in Little Rock, uh, these guys are gangsters. This is this is mafia. This is high level corruption. And so I, I don't think you can uh, position Vince Foster as a straight arrow. I think you have to look at him as a, as a gangster and a, and a corrupt person. Which which makes it difficult to piece together a theory right. as to why he would, um, uh, it, you know, was he killed because he was going to blow the whistle, and uh, and so he got killed before he did blow the whistle. Well, if he was that corrupt, it'd be hard to think of a scenario that would cause him to blow the whistle. Right. Good uh, point. So so one of the things that Hugh and I have sort of been uh, looking at in the last we're talking about the last couple of months is uh, there was a very strange document that they found in the national archives that said uh, uh, that, that referred to the Vince Foster case and talked about child abduction and kidnapping. Interesting. And was it in relation to the finders? Is that right? Uh, no, uh, I've, I've talked, I've, I've had a show or two about it where the finders have come up, but um no, it was just it was just a co- the cover to a report, and the report itself was not in the National Archives. And uh, uh, it 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 looks fairly clear that whoever put it in the National Archives probably made a mistake. Probably wasn't supposed to go in there. Interesting. But for me, it's going to take something really kind of way out there like that to cause somebody like Foster to want to blow the whistle. I mean, if you're a gangster of the first degree and you're doing financial fraud all the time, you're not going to blow the whistle one day just because suddenly you get a conscience. Interesting. But if you find yourself getting thicker and thicker into it, and then all of a sudden you find yourself dealing with pedophiles and people who abduct children and kill children, that could be enough for someone to one day just say, you know what, I've, I've, I've got to speak out about this and I'm, I'm resigning and I can't do it anymore or whatever it is that he said. And that could have been enough to get him killed. Interesting. Um, didn't uh, Web- Webster Hubble come out and say that if anybody thinks it was any, it was a suicide, it's wrong? Or didn't Webb Hubble, one of their old friends from Arkansas, say something like that? Yeah, yeah, he sure did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, I'm not sure what that's about because Hubble's a gangster too. Um, but uh, that makes me wonder if someone outside the Clinton circle killed him. Um, Hubble and a couple others were leaning heavily on Foster the last two or three days of his life, trying to get him to do something. And uh, there's a funny, I think it's funny, uh, editorial in the Wall Street Journal around that same time talking about Hubble, how he had, had just got, got had a broken arm. His arm was in a sling. So I think somebody might have been leaning on Hubble as well. Interesting. And wasn't there, didn't they all travel to the... Uh like the Delaware shore or something like that. Yeah. There was an estate of days before. Yeah. yeah, There's a a mafia guy named Nathan Landau and it was his estate. He was a big Democrat contributor. So they were all there for two or three days. And uh, that made it sealed his fate, huh? Like something went on there. They had a secret discussion and then somebody made the decision that, that Foster had to go. 
Yeah, he wasn't saying the right thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, people would come to his office his final day or the day before and say, you know, are you sure? Are you, are you sure you're sticking with, with your decision here? You know, what do you want me to tell Bill? You know, when I, when I talked to Bill, you know, it was it's a lot of veiled kind of conversation like that, you know, the day or the, the day he died or the day before. And they, I mean, wasn't there, uh, they were right. When was Waco? Waco had just happened. Isn't that correct? And so, yeah, Waco so had just happened. The okay for Waco took place and it's tied to, you know, the, the mass murder at Waco is tied to even Hillary. Isn't that correct? Hillary was known to be very, very obsessed with what was going on with Waco. And, and, uh, there's phone logs that have been examined that show that Hubble, Foster, and Hillary uh, were constantly on the phone with each other around the Waco events and they, and also on the phone with Janet Reno. Um, and uh, Foster was uh, writing a memo about Waco on the day he died. Interesting. Um, and there was also, a, uh, there was two manila envelopes in Bernie Nussbaum's safe, the White House counsel, uh, Foster's boss. And uh, one manila envelope had, uh, um, NSA written on it and the other one had Waco eyes only on it. Um, so there was some, there was some secret stuff going on with Waco. That, that was my first proposed of three reasons he was killed. Second one is, uh, Foster's connection to all the weapons and drug running and corruption in, in Arkansas, Mena, Arkansas airport. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, a uh, bodyguard and security officer named Jerry Parks, whose wife testified to Andrew uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard about cocaine and uh, suitcases of, of cash going back and forth to, you know, to fund right. that, that whole uh, drug running operation. And she went to the grocery store one day just to go buy some groceries. She came out and she opened up the trunk and the entire trunk of the car was filled with hundred dollar bills. And when, when she opened the trunk, she could hardly get it closed again because there was so, it was so packed with hundred dollar bills and she was mortified. She went home and she took a pack of the hundred dollar bills and threw them at her husband and said, what the heck's going on? Are you running drugs? And her husband told her that Vince Foster had put her, put him up to it. Wow. He was supposed to drive, drive it uh, from Mina to somewhere else, you know, with the drugs and the money and whatever. And uh, so Foster was, was heavily involved in that whole thing. And perhaps, uh, perhaps the lid was starting to, you know, uh, be uncovered on that. And uh, with Foster's There were definitely whispers about Mina. I mean, everybody knew. And the amount of money that was coming through there from Barry Seal and all the drugs was astronomical. It was right. some incredible sum in the billions, really. And I right. think that Barry Seal had, you know, was worth a billion, like some crazy amount of money. He was trying to, they had so much money, they had trouble laundering it, right? Yeah, and then Terry Reed, who was one of the guys in that whole thing, one of the pilots, he he has a firsthand testimony of being in a meeting at Mena, Arkansas, with uh, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Oliver North. Wow, that's great. That's amazing. I mean, but, it's just amazing history because before Bill made it to the White House in 93, there were just a whole host of murders prior, you know, prior, to, that ev- prior, to, that ev- prior to that event, right? Right, right. I mean, so that's the second theory that I put in the book in terms of what kind of connections might have led to Foster's death. And the third is just the fact that 
he was just a Clinton crony and and Clinton cronies tend to get knocked off quite a bit. And he was, um, he was supposed to have uh, filed their personal assets into a blind trust. Uh, up until that point, every president had done it by an inauguration day. But the Clintons had dragged their feet. It had been six months. And uh, apparently Foster was refusing to sign the blind asset trust document because he knew whoever signed that document could potentially go to prison. Gotcha. So there is uh, there's speculation that his connection with their personal affairs and their assets and white water and all that kind of stuff was related to his, uh, his getting killed. And how, how do you think that all of these enemies of, of Clinton are being murdered? I mean, how did they, do you think that like somebody like Nichols who's talked about killing people for the Clintons or some ex military people? I mean, it's gotta be, they have to have a, some kind of group, right? Is it the Dixie mafia? Well, I mean, you know, I, uh, Fortunately, I don't know too much about that underworld, but uh, I guess if you know the right people, then you know how to get things done. And uh, as long as uh, as long as the criminals don't don't talk, they can they can keep the game up. Now, I've thought about this, and I've wondered if um, if Foster, because the corruption was just so bad, and they you know, and it's just so rife and so obvious, if if it had gotten so close to getting exposed that that's why Foster was panicking Uh and that he just may have underestimated just how good the Clintons are at keeping all this stuff, you know, uh, from being exposed, from being exposed, even, 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 even if it takes killing a bunch of different people. So I just wonder if, if that's what happened is if it was just so obvious that it was all going to come undone and that's why Foster was, was uh, buckling, right. but, you talk but he, about he, he just underestimated how good they are. And you talk about in your book how Hillary has that kind of relationship with Bill as kind of like her her mind and a fixer and her idea of always fixing stuff. And that, you know, that could be how she came to this conclusion that, you know, things had to be done away with and move forward. She could have made that decision too. Could have been that. Now, because... Uh, uh, because of comments like Web Hubble's, and I think there's even a comment uh, in Web Hubble's book that Hillary's first comment was that she thought that a Navy SEAL team had taken out Vince Foster. Um, you know, wh- whether these people are telling the truth or not, you never can tell. But but uh, that that makes me actually wonder if um, if if uh, Hillary wasn't necessarily hands-on involved in the murder. But uh, and maybe was upset when it happened, but maybe knew that it had to happen. Um, <clears throat> but again, that's why I go back. That's why I fall back in the book on the the the, the big question. That's an, such an indictment on her is not that she did it, uh, but that it's clear and obvious cover up of a murder, and there's obvious terrible corruption in the cover up of this murder, and she's never spoke out about it once. That's that's her great indictment. Now, talk about how, you know, John Clark and Knowlton, because of their status, they were able to create their kind of own uh, uh, document that contradicted the Star Report. And how did that get put through the court system? Well, um, the Office of Independent Counsel was basically 
the creature of Congress that is voted on to go investigate corrupt presidents. And so Congress uh, appointed a three-judge panel to oversee the Office of Independent Counsel. And they chose a judge named Ken Starr, actually a colleague of theirs on the Court of Appeals, to, to become the uh, head of the Office of Independent Counsel. So it's known as the Starr Investigation, the Starr Report, uh, but it's technically called the Office of Independent Counsel. And their job is to investigate thoroughly the matters that have been prescribed to them by Congress. And then when they're done, to write a an exhaustive report on what happened. And so uh, when the time came after, I don't know, what was it, six or seven years of the Star investigation, um, <clears throat> when it came time for him to write his report, uh, he, uh, you know, it was, a, I don't know how many pages, three, 400 page report. And they are required by law to send the extracts uh, that are germane to various witnesses and people that appear in the report. They're required by law to send those summaries to them. And those witnesses and other people that are involved in the report have the opportunity to write their rebuttal or their response uh, and send it to that three judge panel. And they can choose to include it at the end of the report as an appendix or not. And so Knowlton decided to do that, but he decided not to just make some comments about his own, uh, you know, aspects as a witness and what the star report said, which wasn't that too, not that much compared to the whole report about him. He didn't just report about that. He and John Clark and Hugh Turley decided to write an exhaustive 20 page summary of all the cover up, all the, uh, uh, faked evidence, all the falsifications, you know, no x-rays by the coroner, all these lost photographs, three different guns, uh, you know, failure to, uh, check for any fingerprints, you know, on and on and on it goes just all this corruption and, and, and all this documented corruption pretty much overturned everything else that was in the star report itself. And so they went ahead and wrote that as their addendum uh, and submitted it. And when Starr saw it, he was furious. He wrote personally a, a letter uh, r really imploring the judges not to allow that to go into the uh, ultimate official report because uh, he didn't like it. <laughs> and the uh, judges discussed it amongst themselves. I've got the correspondence involved with it. And at the end of the day, they said, no, we're going to include it. One judge said he clearly, he clearly refutes everything that Starr says in his report. I think we need to include and Those it. are like the highest power. They were from the U.S. Court of Appeals, right? I mean, those are guys who are. Yeah, I think it's, the, it, it's right. Yeah, it's right below the Supreme Court. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Scalia was at that same court. So they were not, they were the highest, you know, level of the legal for, you know, community of these guys making a decision to include um, the Knowlton's uh, Clark addendum, you know? Right. So it's, it's pretty incredible. And then it's permanently part of the star report, correct? Permanently part of the record. Yeah. It's part of the record. So. Now, unfortunately, um, 
you know, the star report has gotten uh, uh, hijacked quite purposely, I would think, um, by star himself, but into a sex report. And so when everybody thinks about the star investigation, they think about Bill Clinton and Mona Lewinsky and, you know, cigars and all sorts of, you know, have you read the footnotes, the footnotes of the star report? Yeah, I read the whole dang thing. Yeah, their their footnotes are pretty kinky, man. It gets pretty. Oh yeah, no, yeah, I read it all. Yeah, read it all. Um, But I used to. uh, I had a buddy of mine who interned at Plato Kacharis's office. He was Monica Monica Lewinsky's lawyer, right off Connecticut. So I, you know, I was I was around a lot of that stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, anyway, so the Star Report has come to be known as that sex report, but it's really. Uh, broader it deals with white water and it deals with the foster investigation that sort of thing and so now when you when you google star report you know you get a you get a paperback book that has a picture of monica Lewinsky on it and uh and you and and it's an abridged thing that just talks about the sex capades it doesn't even include anything that has to do with vince foster or the molten addendum or anything so you know the uh ministry of truth uh, the Orwellian Ministry of Truth has done a good job after the fact to make sure that not too much of this gets out. Just minimize, and pretty much all of the Clark Knowlton information was pretty much uh, ignored by the mass media. Is that correct? Yeah, it really was. Uh, uh, other than Ambrose Evans Pritchard early on, uh, and can't think of who else really gave them a lot of press but when when they won the whole thing about their appendix going on the star report they they contacted 100 different news agencies to tell them the news and not a one of them reported it yeah the only one i remember was mike rivero what really happened was that that was pretty much it from my memory of people who reporting there were maybe some smaller um alternative media people who were onto it but Definitely the, the underground grapevine was very aware of Vince Foster. You know, I think that even my friends in the legal community, everybody kind of knew something about it. So they were they just it just didn't get any publicity, which is, you know, remarkable. Although people are still talking about it today, which is, you know, in light of what's happening in D.C. and Hillary's, not what, 70 days from stealing the White House, um, it's still relevant. Yeah, and just to plug my book real quick, um, if you go to Amazon uh, and just put Hillary and Vince in the search engine, my book will come up. And it's a it's a quick read, you know. Like you said, you read the whole thing last night. I wrote it. I, my kind of what I bring to the table is uh, I, I use uh, story structure uh, for nonfiction. So I take a story like this and I. And I use character and plot and protagonists and antagonists and rising stakes and, you know, uh, all the plot points that are necessary to, to weave a very interesting story. I, I use all that in nonfiction. So it makes for a really good read. So I agree. It was a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. It's very clear, easy, easy to uh, grasp some of the complexities of, you know, what was happening at that time. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's really worth, worth reading. And so I encourage people to buy it. Uh, the, is there anywhere uh, else I can get it? Do you have a website or is it just on Amazon? Um, I just have it on Amazon. Uh, you don't like to support Amazon? I do. I just, if sometimes, like I know for myself, I like to sell my books through my website because I get a better, 
better return, better margin than what Amazon does. But all my books are on Amazon. Yeah, well, actually, uh, no, I hear that. I, I've I've published many books, self-published several books, and published books for a lot of people. And uh, you know, I looked at the numbers for Amazon Kindle and Create Space, and you know, after the cost of printing, the cost of pre-press, the cost of postage, and everything like that, it's really not a bad deal. And uh, so, pretty easy, seventy percent. Yeah, so I, 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 yeah, I'm not in that situation where if you were to buy it directly off my website, I'd make a whole lot more money. I, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with this, uh, with how they do it. It's only five eighty eight, five dollars and eighty eight cents on if you buy a Kindle version of it, and I think it's like a ten ninety nine if you buy the paperback version. Um, cool. And uh, and both pretty reasonable prices, and it really is a good read. So I encourage people to do it. What other books have you written? Uh, I wrote a uh, a book called America's Trail of Tears, which is about the Cherokee removal west. Uh, kind of got Andrew Jackson as a bit of an antagonist in that one. Um, and uh, I wrote a, a book about my hometown, Chattanooga, Tennessee, called Old Money, New South, The Spirit of Chattanooga, which is about the billionaire Coca-Cola bottling barons who've run the town mm-hmm. for 150 years. Uh, that one's sold very well and is kind of taking the town by storm uh we've got this one uh i've got a uh movie script that i wrote that haven't hasn't been made yet called uh um the wizard, the wizard of the lion yeah it's about uh, that sounds fascinating yeah c.s lewis and and J.R. tolkien were best friends they had a falling out later in life and, was that uh, the green dragon or something like that the, the uh, pub that used to hang out at uh the bird and the baby i think they call bird it and the baby. oh i got the wrong bird- the bird and the ba- eagle and the child, I think was its official gotcha. name. And they, and they, they nicknamed it the bird and the baby. Um, gotcha. Anyway, so I've got that. I got an endorsement for the Oxford C.S. Lewis society on that script, but it hasn't been made yet. So, uh, so things like that. And I've ghostwritten books for several people. Cool. Well, Dean Arnold, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been very informative. Again, the name of title of the book is Hillary and Vince, a story of love, death and cover up by Dean Arnold. Get it at Amazon. I highly recommend this book. Dean Arnold, thank thank you you so much for your time. Thank you, William. I've enjoyed it. All right. Take care. I'll see you. Bye-bye.